So we're going to jump in, Mere Christianity. So I know you're new tonight, uh, so I'll explain kind of what we're doing. We're doing five weeks on the book, Mere Christianity. Okay. Um, it's by C.S. Lewis. And last week we did sort of an intro just on C.S. Lewis himself, so the legacy of C.S. Lewis. I know you guys missed because Christian threw up or pooped or something. Yeah, one or the other. Um, yeah. I would say the short summary of C.S. Lewis is that during World War II, he was like really famous, like second best known. You know this. This is great. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. Second best known voice in, in England, you know. And so this book, Mere Christianity, which is one of the best selling books, Christian books of all time, really highly regarded Christian book. Um, it was radio broadcasts initially. So like, I think 41, 42, and 44, something like that. All right, so the book we're doing tonight was the first of those radio broadcasts. Okay, so then he turned it into a book and all that sort of thing. I'm also doing the introduction. So it's a lot, but it's some good stuff. I will say that I won't be able to get through everything he covers. Some of what he covers is, is stuff that we already talk about, but we'll get through it. It's gonna be a lot of reading quotes. So I hope you enjoy it. And I'll say this too, there's some, some like really deeply philosophical questions that he kind of like delivers in such a way that for me to summarize it would be kind of tough. And so it's almost one of these things that like, should I just like play the book and you just listen to it or should I try and summarize it? Um, it's short enough that you could probably listen to it. I think the audio book for this chapter was maybe like an hour and 15 minutes, hour and 20 minutes. So it's definitely something you'd listen to. I highly recommend it. Did anyone go read the book this way? I think I bought the, I bought the okay. Audiobook's so great because he reads it kind of like C.S. Lewis. That's what I've been listening to in the shower this week. So um, let me just jump in. There will be some blanks along the way, so you'll see there's some blanks that come up. Um, this is Lewis to, to start us off. This is, again, the introduction. But ever since I became a Christian, I have thought that the best, perhaps the only service I could do for my unbelieving neighbors was to explain and defend the, the belief that has been common to nearly all Christians at all times. So... Uh, I think we talked about this in the introduction, of course, but uh, at the heart of this book, Mere Christianity, and in the title even, is this desire by Lewis to perform Christian service. That's the blank. Um, and I think we can think of service in, in a lot of different ways, in, you know, as a Christian, or even just as, you know, like as a human, or as a medical doctor. There's different ways that we think of service, and how can I pay this back? Um, and I think what Lewis's point is, is that the best and maybe even the only service that he could provide was simply telling the truth about what we believe as Christians. Um, but we'll get into this, not like, you know, the minute details, but the big details, the big bits, okay? Um, so this is his service project, is explaining and defending mere Christianity. And so this book, it contains the basic tenets of our faith, and it's really for those who don't believe. That's the audience he's writing to. I think, though, it's also uh, hugely impactful for those who believe but are struggling with that belief, which I would say is like kind of all of us. Um, and so there's you know, times at which you need something like this that's very basic to kind of bring you back into faith, I think. And I would also say that even if you're like, you know, like I don't have any faith issues, you engage with someone and you may have never had an issue about some of these questions, and maybe now all of a sudden you do. <laughs> or maybe you're just not able to help them with those issues. And so. Um, anyway, all right, so one of his big examples he gives in the introduction is on this idea of the Great Hall, which I think is a, is a classic analogy, and I think it's really helpful. And so uh, you want to kind of imagine this Great Hall uh, that has this enormous, you know, atrium or foyer or however you want to say that, foyer, foyer, um, and that we all get an invitation to this Great Hall. Now, inside this Great Hall, there's all these different rooms, and there's all these different doors that lead into these rooms. And so he says that the hall is a place to wait. That's your blank. 
until you find the door that you must enter. In other words, he's inviting through this book his unbelieving neighbors, that's spelled with a U because he's British, into this great hall where they wait. And eventually they enter a door into a church or denomination that falls within our faith. And so he makes a lot of different analogies about this, but effectively he's saying of the Christian faith in a general sense, it's like being invited into this great hall. Of course, this is inside a mansion, you can imagine. But then inside this great hall, there's all these doors, and those doors lead into different denominations, different ways of thinking. So his goal with mere Christianity is not to get you into a specific room and past a specific door, but it's instead to get you into this great hall. Okay, so just to get you through the door. That's basically his goal of the whole book. Okay, he says this, Above all, you must be asking which door is the true one, not which pleases you best by its paint and paneling. In plain language, the question should never be, do I like that kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness here? Does my conscience move me towards this? Is my reluctance to knock at this door due to my pride or my mere taste or my personal dislike of this particular doorkeeper? <laughs> In a British accent, of course, it's much better. Um, and then this, when you have reached your own room, be kind to those who have chosen different doors and to those who are still in the hall. Okay, so I think you get the point. His point is this, is that uh, a search for a church or denomination that is true and holy and good should be the goal, okay? Uh, not because of the paint and the paneling, he said. Um, when you found that church, though, remember that there are other rooms in that same home, and although those rooms may have different names, they're still under the same roof, okay? And I think that's important. I kind of think we're like in that era right now of like thinking of Christianity in more of a universal sense. And probably we could even go too far in that direction where it's like, ah, we're all good. Um, like, you know, like the uh, coexist stickers and all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, there's, there's a point where that kind of goes beyond. And so I think there is such a thing as the house that is Christianity, all right? And there's certain ways of thinking that maybe don't fall under that great hall or that house. Um, but his point is, is that whatever door you end up in, eh, it doesn't really matter. I think he was like Anglican, but he would say, eh, I'm a lay person. You know, he's not like so specific on that. Um, so the question becomes very simply, who lives in this home, and what does it mean to call yourself a Christian? Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about kind of being progressive. These, these are from Grant Dasher, if you remember Grant. If you ever came a long time ago, you, know, you remember Grant. You probably knew Grant. Um, and so uh, he says this. He says, I kind of hate the word progressive because it carries with it this connotation that it is unfair to those who disagree. If someone is progressive and you disagree with them, then what are you? I guess you're regressive, you know? Nobody wants to be regressive. You don't hear, he says, you don't hear a lot of people at a coffee shop saying, oh man, I'm like super regressive <laughs> on so many issues. Um, <laughs> yeah, sounds like Grant. Yeah, sounds like Grant, yeah. He would have sold that joke better. Um, but he says, but for those of us who are part of a quote progressive church, we take issue with this question, who lives in this home and who, and who can we call a Christian? Because I think in progressive churches, it, it, it's almost predicated on this idea of we don't like to judge. Again, we like to coexist, and eh, you just you do you, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so even the question of well, what constitutes Christianity is a little bit of a murky one. If if you're, you know, maybe your greatest identity is that you're progressive or that you seek to progress in things, and maybe not. I can see Ron Merritt does not agree, um, <laughs> and I think maybe some of this mindset, it comes in reaction to how we were raised. Maybe we had parents who were very judgmental about religion, uh, so however you were raised, I don't know. Um, I would say that to some degree, uh, my family was raised in that way of thinking of, you know, so I grew up Church of Christ, and that was the right way to be, and 
my parents were not as conservative or as regressive, I guess, as others. You know, I went to a school where where Will went, pretty pretty regressive. You know, that this was the, this was the right way. This was the exact way that you turn the doorknob and enter into the the room that is this specific type of Church of Christ. You know, that's all that really matters. And in fact, we've soundproofed this room so that you don't know that there's a hall out there with other <laughs> doors. You know, we don't even we don't even accept that it's out there. There's a keypad on it, and you can't get out. Um, and I think that's uh, that you got to make sense. And so, in that kind of way of thinking, that really regressive way of thinking, um, if you got the wrong view on you know Church Christ, it would be the wrong view on communion or instruments or baptism or predestination or whatever. Uh, you're destined for hell, even like it's, it becomes that extreme. And uh, I think that's pretty wild. Uh, this is also from Grant, but I've had similar experiences that he said he had a conversation with an old friend whose son is a recovering heroin addict. Um, and coming right out of rehab, uh, he started attending a denomination other than the one in which he grew up. And the mom said that uh, she and the dad were just devastated. <laughs> and I shared this with Grant. It's like, um, <laughs> it might be the first time in his whole life that he's actually been excited about knowing Jesus. And rather than them being exciting for, excited for him, they're, they're freaking out about the name on the building, you know. So kind of bizarre. And again, I think like in our culture, in our time, we're like, that's ridiculous. But I don't think it's been that long since that's the way that people thought of. And I wonder like, when our kids are older, like what side of this spectrum are they going to be on? You know, I don't know. So they'll probably push all the way back to being like really regressive or whatever you want to say, or authoritarian. Um, and maybe that's how you grew up, and maybe that's not at all how you grew up. You may be thinking, like, that doesn't sound like my family at all. In fact, they thought everyone was, you know, Christian or whatever. I, I don't know, like, you know, what temperature you grew up in. Um, and so I think the problem is, is that uh, for people like that, they start realizing that this home that they inhabit in this specific room is much larger than they had been told. Um, and you start realizing that a lot of those lost people were actually really faithful followers of, of Christ. Now, again, this might not be an issue for you. You may not struggle with this at all. But I think it's important to, to recognize uh, the greater swath of, of Christianity and that there's these different rooms and things. All right, so we've talked about this a lot. It comes up a lot. But this idea of primary, secondary, tertiary doctrine. Caitlin, this is like the seventh time you've probably, maybe eighth time you've heard this. Um, and what I would say is that, uh, you know, so when we talk about primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrine, it's levels, okay? It's not to say that certain ones are not important, that it's to say that, you know, third-level Christian issues or doctrines aren't important. It's just to say that primary doctrines are more important, okay? And so this is the, what Lewis is saying. He's like, I'm not going to argue about secondary and tertiary things. We're just going to talk about the primary stuff. Um, and so I think clearly secondary and tertiary issues, they impact how we operate as a church, how we live as Christians. It, it helps determine which door we end up opening and which room we end up inhabiting, right? Um, but the point is this, is that many of us have uh, been negatively impacted, either through our parents' generation or our own, by this idea that our church has it all right and anyone who disagrees is lost. Uh, and again, what do we do so often when we experience something negative? What's our natural inclination? Avoid it. Is to avoid it, yeah, or to embrace the opposite. All right, so I think those are your two options. Disengage or engage the opposite. Um, and I don't think either one's really appropriate necessarily. Um, 
And so I think maybe for some of us, the question of who can be called a Christian uh, might make us uncomfortable. Um, and we don't want to find ourselves in this judgmental, authoritarian place that maybe our parents grew up in. Um, Lewis makes this point that there are, in fact, basic primary doctrinal beliefs that we can all agree on. And those are the things that make up, again, mere Christianity. So mere is your blank. Now, you'll see on your sheet you've got this little like scale that's like ultra-progressive on one side and strict authoritarian on the other side. And I think as long as we're on that scale, uh, I'd argue that the gospel is rarely heard, if ever. Okay? I think as long as we're so focused in on where we are, um, or if that's the way in which we think about our faith, um, it, it often is, if not always, that the gospel becomes secondary to those leanings or those urges or those focuses, foci. Um, so, um, and Lewis makes this argument that uh, public arguments against, uh, amongst Christians rather, over these secondary and tertiary doctrinal beliefs actually serve to push non-believers further from belief. Um, do you think that's true? Yes. So I have some hot head nods, yes. Um, anyone disagree with that? you think that's really overstating things? I think it's true to a degree, but I think there's, I think like hypocrisy is far worse than that. Okay, sure. Well, that doesn't make this false, but I'm saying sure. I think there's far worse things than that. Oh yeah, sure. But. I wonder if it should be more painful for us within Christianity than us than like people trying to learn about Christianity. Yeah, and I, I wonder like why we, Again, this is like, we have a diverse group, and I don't exactly know. You might be like, well, I've never like sat around here. I don't know if every church is like this. I just know the church that I've grown up in, there were a lot of times where people argued over what I think are relatively minute things, and that maybe we always kind of end up in those places because do we feel like we've already like explored everything there is to explore in the primary stuff? I don't know. But what you find is that like that's the important stuff. I don't know. I think maybe you can make analogies to like business, even like in a practice setting. It, it's... Oftentimes people are like dealing with all these like minute things about how they're going to do this specific element of this giveaway and it's like, yeah, but you're like 15 minutes late on every patient you see, like you should probably focus on that, you know. And I kind of think the church is like that and Christianity is like that. Like we, we like you haven't talked about the gospel in five weeks. Like why are you talking about this? Right, which is my next point, which is great. No, it's fantastic. This is that's when you know you're in the right spot. Um, so, uh, in other words, and this is to Anna's point, is a disproportionate focus on secondary and tertiary doctrinal beliefs means that no one can hear the primary beliefs. Okay, which yeah, we kind of take them for granted. But to someone who's an unbeliever or to someone who is struggling with belief, those are really the things that they need to hear. Um, and on the flip side, as Anna said, if you're just a nice person, you serve the community, everybody loves you, but you never explain or defend the primary beliefs, you don't even want to go that far. It's like, well, I'm not going to talk about any beliefs because those are offensive. Uh, then the gospel is just as powerless. So people need to know why you're kind and why you want to serve them. So I think the goal should be, 
um, to remove ourselves from this thinking that we are either ultra-progressive or strict authoritarian or whatever, and intend focus primarily on the primary doctrinal beliefs, then secondarily on the secondary doctrinal beliefs, and I guess what, tertiarily on tertiary beliefs? I don't know. We won't even go to quaternary. Okay, we're going to leave that alone. Uh, but, but you get the point. And I, like, I kind of think that's like, um, it comes down to a question of like identity. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately as it pertains to politics and, and whatever like the, you know, the sort of the hot issue is right now is that I see so many people, like I love Twitter, I love re- like reading where people are and how they think and how they respond to things and what they like and retweet. It's probably a sickness, but it's, it's just an interesting like big human experiment. Um, and I think people, it's clear like what they identify as like most and it's, that shouldn't be your identity, you know? And if like your Christian identity is, is like, man, I'm like a total like four point Calvinist and like here's why, like, I just don't know. I mean, I just don't know if that's like, what your identity should be. Because um, I think it does take a lot of effort and time away from the gospel. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, so uh, this, is, uh, this is another one of Grant's points, but uh, he says, I don't know how Satan thinks, but if I were Satan, I would try to get God's church to talk as little as possible about the things that matter most. Christ's atoning blood, the resurrection, Christian morality, what is good, what is evil, where do good and evil come from, the deity of Christ, the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the indwelling work of the Spirit in our lives, and so on. Those are the things that have the power to liberate people, and those are the things that are most crucial for non-believers to hear. And Lewis says that the basic components of mere Christianity should be the things that unite us. That is the why behind the what. The why is so that Christianity in its purest form can be explained and defended to our unbelieving neighbors with a U, and that we can all be united in that singular cause. Um, so, I think you get that point. All right, so then that is just the introduction. All right, so this idea of the Great Hall, that the church is, uh, you know, different denominations, different names, whatever, different flavors, they're all ice cream, okay? We're all in this big Baskin Robbins. There's all these different flavors, this big hall. And I think it's important to remember that. And I think it's healthy to, you know, seek unity in those ways. I mean, I do. And again, like, I think we're in a time now where that, like, message maybe isn't needed as much. Um, maybe the message that we need is that, yeah, unity is great. But at the same time, like, there are some things that are essential to Christianity. And I think maybe that's the message that's more important now is, is that I see people want to make Christianity sort of like practical advice on how to, like, live a better life or something. Or that Jesus was just a moral teacher and he had some good things to say. But so did Confucius and so did this guy and this girl. And have you heard, you know, Brene Brown and she's fantastic and you need to hear this TED talk. Um, I, I think like Christianity can kind of get away from what it actually is. So, um, all right, so right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe is the name of book one. Again, like this was his first lecture. And I'll just be honest, like you need to read it, you need to listen to it, it's really good. Um, and it's hard to summarize. Okay, so there's like five sections of it. We'll get through three of them. One of them we'll talk about later. It actually talks about like arguments for the universe needing a god effectively to like create it. We, if you've been in this group for long enough, we've talked about that a lot. Okay, so I'll, I'll briefly summarize it, and then the last one is sort of just like a conclusion. So we'll talk about the first three. Um, so again, that was just the intro. We'll get into this book. Um, so you probably know Sir Isaac Newton. Anybody? Anybody? All right. Um, and so the story goes that he was sipping tea one summer afternoon beneath an apple tree 
when all of a sudden an apple broke loose from the tree and clobbered poor Isaac on the head. You know the story, right? It probably didn't happen. That's probably not true. That's probably not how it happened. I think any uh, classic story involving fruit is probably tr- probably not true. The cherry tree, those are the only two I know. Yeah, he didn't cut that down. Um, but I think what is true is at some point is, we know this, Isaac Newton realized that all objects on earth have this common behavior. Okay, They always act this way. Maybe at some point he noticed that if his tea escaped the rim of his cup, it would be drawn towards the earth and spill in his lap. Or maybe he noticed that every time he bent over too far, his wig would be pulled off his head and fall to the ground. Uh, in any case, what he observed and what we all observe is that every time you let go of something, what does it do? It falls towards the earth. Now, I know what Ryan is thinking because he's an intellectual. Is that what about a balloon filled with helium? <laughs> well, Ryan, atmospheric air is heavier than he- helium, and helium is displaced upward. So there. Uh, but the point is, is that Newton discovered what we know now is what? The law of gravity. Thank you for saying the word law. It's very good. The law of gravity. And here's your blank. And we call it a law. Why do we call it a law? Because we've never discovered anything that acts differently. Okay? It's a law because it's true 100% of the time. Right? If it didn't happen 100% of the time, it wouldn't be a law, would it? <laughs> okay? So it's a law. And it's science, you know, it has quite a few laws, but it only has so many. Right? There's only so many things that are like laws or that are absolute 100% of the time. And so uh, 100% of the time we can observe objects being pulled towards one another depending on their mass and how far apart they are. And you understand gravity. You've learned the gravity thing, the equation. Um, We've also got a lot of laws like this in physics and math. And we say these objects or these numbers behave this certain way every single time. And we call those behaviors laws, right? All right, so Lewis says that like these laws of physics and math, there is another law. And this is what he calls the law of nature. The law of nature. Okay. And it's probably not what you think of when you hear the law of nature. Okay. We're going to be talking about morality. I have a little bit of a long quote here. Hang with me. So he says of the law of nature, this law was called the law of nature because people thought that everyone knew it by nature and did not need to be taught it. They did not mean, of course, that you might not find an odd individual here and there who did not know it, just as you find a few people who are colorblind or have no ear for a tune. But taking the race as a whole, they thought that the human idea of decent behavior was obvious to everyone. So the law of nature is your conscience. It's your awareness that you ought to do certain things and you ought not to do other things. Okay? And then getting back into this. And I believe they were right. If they were not, then all the things we said about the war were nonsense. What was the sense in saying the enemy were in the wrong unless right is a real thing, which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced? If they had no notion of what it meant to be right, then, though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than, oh, wow, for that than the color of their hair. Sorry. Um, let me read it again. If they had no, if, oh, it's the typo. That's why. Um, if the Nazis had had no notion of what it meant to be right, then, though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than the color of their hair. Wow. Again, Lewis, master of words and diction. Um, So, the difference between the laws of physics and the law of nature is that you cannot know the law of nature by observing people. That's the difference, okay? And he kind of does a a great job of explaining that. Um, And and the difference is this, is that we can know the law of gravity by observing the way objects fall to earth. Over and over again, the rock falls to the earth every single time. 
Um, but it's because these objects have no choice. Okay, So we can really easily and scientifically test laws like that because a rock always behaves that way because it has no free choice. It's going to behave that way every time. In the same way that multiplication, 2 times 2 is always 4, the 2's don't get an option to do, you know, perform that differently. Um, the law of nature is different because we do have an, an option or a choice. And people are different, right? We do have a choice. And Lewis says that the law of nature cannot be known by observing people in the same way that we observe rocks falling. Instead, the law of human nature tells you what human beings ought to do, but still do not do. Okay? Now, I don't think I have this in these notes, but the difference is, of course, what, what is the difference as humans? What, what is it special information we have? Well, we are humans, so we know what it's like to be human. I don't know what it's like to be a rock, but I can observe a rock, and it exists as a rock and performs as a rock every time. But as it pertains to the law of nature, it's hard to observe Jared and know from watching Jared exactly what the law of nature is. Okay. But we know what the law of nature is because it acts on all of us, and we have an individual experience with that, which is a, the uniqueness of the law of nature, is, is that we both can observe it, but we can also experience it, which is different than you know, heating up some element in a jar or something and watching it and then having to make little notes about it. Not an element, a compound, whatever. Yeah, it could be an element. Um, all right, so this is his point. You can't observe the Nazis and say, well, I guess there's no real law governing human behavior. Uh, humans aren't like rocks. We have the freedom of human choice. And the truth is the Nazis chose evil, objectively. We know, without a doubt, that what the Nazis did was wrong. It doesn't mean that there's not a natural law. It simply means that they broke that law. They chose not to obey it. Okay? And here's the rub. We're not maybe as bad as the Nazis in our minds. I think that's maybe that's safe to say. Okay, we've, we've not done some of the things they did, um, or maybe any of the things they did, but we do all break the law. And I have a confession to make, is that I've done things that are purely for my own selfish gain at the expense of others. I've cheated, stolen, lied, and almost everyone you know would say that it is objectively wrong to do those things. He talks about this in the book, is, is that, um, and man, he does it so well, but um, that, you know, someone accidentally takes your seat on a train and you're not so mad at them but if someone does it on purpose you're furious at them okay um, if and then there's another funny one that he says is that someone who tries to trip you you're more mad at them than the person that actually does trip you by accident you know um, and we see this in our kids that at a very early age there's a very strong sense of right and wrong and what's just and unjust and yet the first time that we <laughs> steal something from someone or treat someone unfairly, what is our go-to when we're called on it? Well, it's to justify our own actions, right? But for someone else, our first assumption is, well, why did they cheat me out of that? Or what, why are you so evil, effectively, you know? So we all have this, like, very, very built into us, this understanding of the law of nature, meaning what we ought to do. Now, the problem is, is you can watch a kid and you say, well, this kid is evil, okay? He's also born with evil in him. At the same time, when they're called out on it, they understand that they're wrong and they feel guilt for it. So it's this weird kind of murky thing that I think we all know exists. I think we all accept that we have a conscience, and which we'll start to unpack a little bit more. But it's, it's weird, it's murky, and it's deeply philosophical, and it's something people have argued about for thousands of years. Probably not going to figure it out in the next 20 minutes, but I want your mind to kind of work through some of these things, okay? 
Um, so the question, though, I think that's important, because we, I think we would all accept that these things are true, that these things are rattling around, that there is a certain law or a certain thing that's common to all of us. The question becomes why. Why is it wrong to be selfish? Why is it wrong to enslave? Why is it wrong to oppress? Why do we react negatively when people do these things to us? Assuming you think it's wrong to enslave and oppress and be selfish and all these things. Um, are these ideas like justice and truth and evil just floating around in space for us to grab hold of? Or are they rooted in something else? Uh, I think some of us would say they're probably you know, intellectual. Uh, maybe they're like socially, um, you know, from like a sociological standpoint, they're just sort of collected over time and we decide, well, this is this and this is that. Um, that maybe we feel an impulse to act in certain ways based on the coding of our DNA uh, or whatever, okay? The problem, Lewis says, is that we confuse the instincts themselves with the moral law that governs those instincts. So I'm going to unpack that. Um, he uses this analogy of a piano, and he says the instincts are like the keys on a piano. Okay. So Lewis says every key is right at one time and wrong at another. Think of a mother's instinct to love her son. Almost every time, this instinct is good, right? And it's right. But we all know those moms where the instinct uh, to love her son can maybe go a little too far. Okay, so maybe you've watched them at a baseball game. Maybe you are one, or maybe you will be one someday. No, I don't know. Um, but love for your son develops into hatred for the umpire, for the other team, or you scream or you shout. I once, wa I once watched a dad kick over a trash can at a baseball game. It was hilarious, uh, but it was probably really embarrassing for his son, who wasn't that great at baseball. Um, so it's double embarrassing. I'm just kidding. Um, but we've all seen that, right? Uh, we've seen, you know, what's what's good, kind of, you know, that instinct maybe turn out for wrong. Um, and then, of course, there are times where, uh, oh, sorry, or what about the instincts for sex and fighting? Most of the time, those instincts are actually wrong. To play that key is, is wrong at certain times. Um, what if every time you felt those instincts, you acted on it? Probably wouldn't be here right now. Okay, you'd probably be in prison. Okay. Um, and then, of course, there are times where those instincts or those piano keys are right. And so you play that, and it's good. Uh, there are times where husband and wife should have sex. Sorry to use the word sex. Um, and then there are times where helpless people need to be defended and uh, from people who want to hurt them. And so our impulses and our instincts, uh, or sorry, our impulses or our instincts, same thing, are the keys on the piano. And every key is at one time right or another wrong. But there is this, and here's your blank, symphony that has been written for us. We have the sheet music. Paul says it's been written on our hearts. And if we play the notes the way they've been written, what follows is beautiful. You may not like that analogy. I hope you do. I hope you like it. And so I would say this. There's a difference between the notes on a piano and the way that the song is supposed to be played. And there's a difference between our impulses or instincts and the way in which we are supposed to act, the way that we are designed to be. Okay. You're probably completely confused. Well, let me, let me read this. This is Lewis's quote here. I think this is actually in your sheet. The most dangerous thing you can do is to take any one impulse of your own nature and set it up as a thing that you ought to follow at all costs. There is not one of them which will not make us into devils if we set it up as an absolute guide. You might think love of humanity in general was safe, but it is not. If you leave out justice, you will find yourself breaking agreements and faking evidence and trials for the sake of humanity and become in the end a cruel and treacherous man. I think that's pretty good. Um, so that kind of gets back to the, the progressive versus the authoritarian scale, I think. And so uh, some people consider the law of nature to be a social convention. I kind of hinted at that earlier. Something that's man-made, something that's collected uh, you know, by society or culture. 
And look, I'm not trying to act like this is like an easy argument. It's like, oh, mic drop. Like, we figured this all out. No. I mean, you find, you know, people that, you know, in parts of Brazil, we just discovered them. They'll have some weird social things that they do that we're like, okay, it's kind of hard to figure out. Um, so we're not going to get to all those arguments. I still think there is a certain, at our core, conscience or kind of understanding of morals from an objective standpoint that is impossible to understand purely on a materialistic or naturalistic level. Um, and so some people think it's a social convention. This law that governs what is good and bad, right and wrong, was something that people constructed. Um, and so Grant, again, he originally gave this lesson. I left this in, but he said as he was writing it, his daughter Van came downstairs and he asked her, why is it wrong to be selfish? And she said, because God told us when he made us. And so Grant said, what if I told you that you should be selfish and that was good? And she said, that would be weird because I'd have to disobey my parents. Um, in other words, Dad, I've got this law written on my heart and I feel compelled to obey it. Uh, we saw Adam's family this weekend and it really wasn't that bad. Uh, a lot of these cartoon movies that come out, you all don't have to watch because you don't have young kids that want to see this stuff. And you're so fortunate. You're so fortunate. Uh, we go and see them and a lot of times they're really just not good. And sometimes kids' movies are pretty good. Um, you know, a surprising one was uh, Lego Movie 2 was just awful. It's terrible. Yeah, it's awful. It's awful. I love the first one. Um, ah, the first one was great. The second one was just just awful. And uh, Hotel Transylvania three was so bad. It was just unwatchable. But we saw Adam's family this weekend, and I want you to explain. Do you remember the story that of Libby? What she said to you? Oh yeah, like twenty minutes into the movie, she. I, I mean, if you guys are familiar with the Adam's family, but obviously everything that's like. Great. Let me explain the Adam's family. Uh, so it's a, have you seen Adam's Family? It's a show back in like the 50s and 60s, like black and white, and it's basically like Halloween characters. You know, you got like a, a mummy guy, and you got like a Elvira type, you know, vampire, yeah, whatever, Morticia, and they like everything that's gross and macabre, and you know, they don't like the good things. So go ahead. Dusting their house is like they get out the vacuum and they spray dust all over their house. You know, so like for a young mind. This is like really confusing. So that I could tell the first like twenty minutes, she's like, "What?" You know, they're like <laughs> everything that's gross. Well, the brother and sister are like shooting crossbows at each other, yeah, and, and you know. And so, so about twenty minutes in, she looks at me. She's like, "Mom, everything that's bad, they like it." And I was like, <laughs> "Like it, like clicked in her brain." <laughs> like, oh, I can follow this story now because I get the concept. Like, <laughs> so if it's gonna be like a stinky sock, they're gonna want to smell that. You know, like all of the things. And it was just interesting to watch her figure out that it was like a whole different reality for them. It's cute. Yeah. Um, that's the joke. That's Adam's family. <laughs> like the whole movie. Of flowers is just stems with thorns on it. <laughs> it's like, but like it was just funny. It's really cute. Yeah. yeah. And then Anna fell asleep. <laughs> um, it wasn't bad though. It was good. I spent most of it on my phone, but it was good. What the parts I got. Um, so what you guys have to look forward to. So you get the point uh, of kind of competing worldviews. So uh, Lewis makes the point that even if someone didn't know the law, that doesn't mean that the law doesn't exist. And so he compares natural law to the law of multiplication. He makes the point that we would never consider the law of multiplication to be man-made simply because a child stranded on a deserted island doesn't know his timetable. Uh, we'd say that the law is still true, he just doesn't fully know it yet. Okay. Um, so complete knowledge of the moral law isn't required for it to be a law. Okay. Again, 
difficult. I can see Ryan struggling with that. Um, and so I think I would say this is that secondly, uh, everyone operates under the assumption that some morals are better than others. There were people in 1865 who believed that it was morally acceptable to own other human beings. And today, I don't know a single person who would at least openly say that, right? Most of us have kind of evolved beyond that. Um, but the truth is, is it was wrong then, you know? It's just that socially we had constructed this concept whereby it was okay for whatever reason. And I'm sure there's some other things that we're doing today that are like that than 20 years. Maybe it's jewel smoking, I don't know, uh, that we'll think is bad. Um, and so we would argue as we sit here, and tell me if I'm wrong, that our morality and our view of morality uh, is superior to that of people living in 1865. Today is Columbus Day, and we can't even celebrate Columbus Day, and probably for mostly good reasons, right? He's not a great guy, probably. Um, or should I even say probably? I don't know if I can say probably anymore. I think for what we know of him, he was not a good man. Okay. Um, the bank is still closed. The bank still closed. They still get off for that. Well, now it's Indigenous People's Day. Um, we would say that our morality is better than that of Columbus. That today, if we were exploring new worlds, we wouldn't do the things he did, right? Uh, Lewis says this, The moment you say that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are, in fact, measuring them both by a standard saying that one of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other. You are, in fact, comparing them with some real morality, admitting that there is such a thing as real right, independent of what people think, and that some people's ideas get nearer to that real, real right than others. So some say that morality is what benefits us as individuals. That's your blank. But what about when it doesn't? What about self-sacrifice and selflessness? Uh, obviously, there's countless examples of when doing the right thing is not of benefit. Mm -hmm. So I think that acts against arguments for, you know, the fact that we are only genetically motivated. So in two ways, that we're determined by our physical makeup, that molecules bouncing into one another dictate how we act, or that uh, some sort of evolutionary pressure uh, such that it, you know, the survival of the fittest, let's say, um, if that were the, the, the motivation for the things that we did morally, that wouldn't always make sense um, from a purely like evolutionary standpoint. So the idea that this would lead to us you know, multiplying or, or you know, furthering our genetic code doesn't make a whole lot of sense when people do th things selflessly. And they give their lives up for someone else or whatever it might be. Um, and so I, I think there are arguments against both the society-driven morality and also against this sort of purely scientific or naturalistic understanding of, of morality. Um, some say that morality is what benefits society. And so you could say, well, it's not necessarily individually, but you do these things because it's good for society. Um, but Lewis says, if we ask, why should I be unselfish? And you reply, because it is good for society. We may then ask, why should I care what's good for society, except when it happens to pay me personally? And then you will have to say, because you ought to be unselfish which simply puts us back to where we started. Okay, so uh, a little confusing, a little difficult. Again, there's more there, but that kind of gets at some of it. A couple chapters we're not going to get into. Chapter four, um, this is the one where he starts talking about the universe and that there's two basic ways of conceiving of the universe. There's the materialist or the naturalistic view of, uh, of the universe, and there's a the religious view. So the materialistic or this idea of materialism or naturalism um, it proposes that matter and time just happen to exist and always have existed. Nobody knows why. Now that, that kind of undersells it a little bit. Um, we've talked about that at great depth. Um, you effectively have to take 
existence as we know it that operates on a series of laws and except for this one time in history those laws did not act as laws that both time space and matter came out of existence for some unknown reason and against all probabilities a series of one in a thousand after one in a thousand after one in a thousand which the one in a thousand is actually one in several billion that things came about to look like they do right now um, which is, is, is a little specious to me, and it requires some faith. Uh, the religious view maintains that the universe was created by a conscious being, or what uh, C.S. Lewis calls a mind. And this is a being with a plan for what the universe should be. And for as long as there have been people, both the religious and materialistic views have been in existence. Um, the materialistic view for past millennia has been that the universe is uh, eternal. Because it's eternal, then it had time to kind of develop in its own way. Or maybe there were multiple universes that sprouted off and with past eternity, well, anything's really possible. Um, as of, you know, 1920 and really probably popularly 1940, 1950, we accept that that's not really possible. So it's not past eternal. We have a finite amount of time. And in that finite amount of time, I don't think materialism really makes a lot of sense as a worldview, personally. Um, and I think actually all these scientific views or findings lead to uh, support of the religious view of the universe. Okay, that's the universe section in like six seconds. Okay, and then chapter five. Um, I think what's interesting is at this point in this book, what has Lewis actually proven, and if you've read it, done a better job than what I've done, um, he's not really said anything about God. Certainly not about a Christian God, and, and certainly not about a personally theistic God. Like, none, none of that, okay? Um, he's merely established that there's a somebody or something, what he calls a mind, behind the moral law. And the only thing he's really suggested about this being are that it is one a tremendous artist since this universe is beautiful and complex and seemingly designed okay and two uh, that this mind or the somebody or something behind the universe and the moral law is interested in doing the right thing since otherwise it wouldn't have endowed human beings with a strong sense of right and wrong okay that's his argument so that's basically it that's like you know, the, the right and wrong is a clue to the, you know, the meaning of the universe, or the existence of the universe, is that in terms of our worldviews, it seems like the re religious view makes the most sense in terms of how we got here, how, how our universe got here, how everything's so complex, everything's so ordered, and that when you see this moral law, this natural law inside of human beings that is different than that of all other objects, it points to this something, this higher power, that desires good uh, over evil from us is basically all he's saying so of course we've not reached a christian god yet but we'll get there in subsequent lessons so uh, this is what we'll conclude with uh, why should i do good things and not do bad things well um, <laughs> the answer is that if there is not some natural law governing our behavior then i don't see how we have any obligation to do anything at all so i think that's that's kind of the turn is is that why should you do good things and not do bad things? I mean, truly, if there is no God, if there's no higher power, and this really is just a random, you know, smattering of, of molecules, and we're just stardust, then there is no obligation to do anything for any reason other than that what benefits you, maybe your offspring. Um, I believe, of course, there is a natural law that is seen in creation and that we know in our hearts to be true, and I believe that we all break that law. We all, at some point, most of us frequently, do things other than things that we know we're supposed to do, and that's a problem. Lewis says this, This is the terrible fix we're in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all our efforts are in the long run, run hopeless. 
But if it is, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. So Lewis makes the point that nothing else in Christianity makes sense if we don't first understand this, and yet we wonder why we have such a difficult time getting people to understand Jesus. So our last blank is we are lawbreakers, all of us. We all break this natural law. And when we do it, we feel guilty about it, I guess for a time. And then there maybe reaches a time where we no longer feel guilty about it. It's another story. Um, and none of us have kept this natural law that we know is true. And if we don't understand how things went wrong, how can we be expected to understand how things were made right? How can we ever understand Jesus and the cross? And how can we understand mere Christianity? Okay. Let's discuss.